Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, you're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe on podcast. My name is Peter Frey, and the producer of this show is the tireless Nina Coppell. This week's show seems to be all about bashing. We're asked, is Australian media coverage of China and its local influences racist? Are journalists being too quick to jump on bank, bank bashing? And yes, why is the Prime Minister again after Emma Alberici? Joining me in the studio is the self-same Emma Alberici, ABC Chief Economics Correspondent. Thanks for coming, Emma. Thanks for having me. Chris Kenny, Associate Editor of The Australian and host of Sky News show Kenny on Sunday. Hello, Chris. Hello, Peter. That'll be on Sundays. Yeah, it would be. Kenny on Sunday. And on the line from Melbourne is the many-hatted Ben Haltham, who is National Affairs Correspondent at New Matilda, Arts Journalist at Crikey, and a lecturer at Monash University. G'day, Ben. G'day. How are you going? As I just said, this is a show where journalists talk about journalism. But the Prime Minister, it seems, just wants to talk about an individual journalist, namely the ABC's economics correspondent, Emma Alberici, one of our guests tonight. Fairfax has revealed that Malcolm Turnbull lodged a list of no less than 11 grievances to ABC management earlier this month about a story on spending on research and innovation. The story included claims by Dr. Roy Green, a former head of the UTS Business School and Universities Australia, that the coalition government had cut almost $12 billion from higher education and innovation over the past five years. This is the federal government's second complaint about Emma's reporting in recent months. And in response to the latest, the ABC corrected one uh, error but dismissed the rest of the PM's concerns. Take it from me. There's absolutely nothing new about politicians complaining about journalists, but it's pretty rare for it to get this public and this personal. Chris, you've occasionally been the subject of complaints by politicians. What do you think of this situation? Look, it's always difficult if you're a journalist and you're getting attacked uh, from the highest, most powerful uh, places in the land, uh, but that was ju- that's what uh, journalism is all about. Um, uh, we often say it's about talking truth to power, so you've got to be prepared to ruffle feathers, and uh, and you often get attacked uh, from people in authority or people who are aggrieved, and people have a special interest. Uh, the important thing, of course, as a journalist is to make sure your facts are right so that when they attack you, you're impregnable. Now, that sometimes doesn't happen. I'm not here to bash Emma, but she's had some trouble with some of these stories recently. And I think she's also uh, perhaps a bit of a victim of a broader cultural argument about the ABC. And so therefore, it's a bit personal uh, for Emma. But uh, I think the thrust of some of those stories, plus some of the economic debates that are dominating national politics at the moment, along with the uh, cultural debate or political debate about uh, political bias at the ABC, has all sort of been... uh, brought together this little fulcrum that, uh, that is Emma Alberici at the moment. So uh, I have some sympathy for Emma. Uh, it's tough going through these uh, issues, but uh, in the end, you've just got to get the facts right. And you get at the other side, right? Absolutely. I mean, in this case, uh, the ABC has looked at Emma's story about innovations and research, 
and said, yes, so there's one uh, error, but the rest of it, they're standing by. Yeah, look, and, and, and nobody, uh, nobody is infallible, and all of us have made mistakes in our journalism, and the thing is, when you do make a mistake, either a factual mistake or an interpretation, then you've got to recognise it, uh, admit that, uh, correct it, and move on. And certainly, I'm certain all of us in journalism have done that at times, and uh, and, and, and you need to do that. Uh, that doesn't mean you cave into every criticism. You'll get criticised when your facts are into or interpretation are right, and if that's that's the case. Stand your ground, make your argument and plough on. Okay. Ben, how do you interpret what's going on? I mean, MPs have a right to complain, clearly, and they exercise that uh, freely. But should it be so public and so targeted? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think the articles are public and the debate is public. So I don't have a problem with the Prime Minister publicly making a complaint. Uh, I think what I have a problem with is the, the substance of those complaints, which I think is basically groundless. I didn't have any issues with them as original reporting on the the banks, and, and I have no issues with them as reporting on innovation. I thought both sets of articles were excellent and, and basically true. So you think that uh, Emma's being targeted? What's your view? Why is that? Oh, I think she's just a victim in the ongoing war between the ABC and its critics on the right of politics, uh, the people who are profoundly opposed to the very concept of public broadcasting, in my opinion. And so... Uh, taking a pot shot at a prominent economics correspondent. She's just collateral damage as part of the broader culture war. Um, Emma, the last word is with you. Uh, how do you respond to Mr Turnbull's complaints and how does it feel being you know, the story again? So, first of all, Ben mentioned my original story with banks. It wasn't about banks. It was about corporate tax, tax cuts. Tax ones, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, sorry, my, my apologies. No, that's okay. Um, it's important to get facts one. correct. And so, uh, sorry, Ben, that was just a bit of nuanced <laughs> joking there, which is hard when you're not in our presence. But um, look, all I will say on this matter is that I don't want to be the news. I think it's uh, it's unfortunate because there are so many bigger things to be talking about than about journalists, and there's nothing worse than journalists talking about journalists. I think there are bigger issues. We're here to talk about things that are in the news. I think there are bigger things that we should be talking about. And move on. Correct. Okay. You are listening to The Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk about journalism. And joining me in the studio is Emma Alperici, the ABC Chief Economics Correspondent, and Chris Kenny, columnist with The Australian, the host of Sky News show Kenny on Sunday. And on the line from Melbourne is Ben Eltham, who inspires students at Monash University in between writing for New Matilda and Crikey. My name is Peter Frey, and if you don't like the sound of my voice, come back next week when my producer Nina Capel will be hosting the show. Let's talk about China. Ever since the release of Clive Hamilton's book, Silent Invasion, the debate about China's influence in Australia and the media's reporting of it has stepped up to a new level, although some would say a new low level. Some critics are suggesting there's a racist undertone in much commentary and reporting on China, especially since since the government started discussing stronger foreign interference laws. Fairfax journalist Chris Zapponi recently wrote that Australia's supposed anti-China bias is itself being weaponized by the Chinese, or part of a strategy to muddy the discussion about Sino-Aussie relations. So are we, as the news media, failing to put forward a balanced view of Chinese influence on one hand, and on the other, stigmatizing China? The Walkley Foundation is, uh, is debating this very topic tonight, but we thought we'd open it up to the rest of the country 
But to start off with, we asked Professor Wanning's son, a media scholar at UTS, who will be on the Walkley panel, what she thinks about the media coverage of the past few months. Reporting about Chinese influence has, in my view, drifted away from the mode of objective journalism and is moving closer to the mode of, of adversarial journalism. I think too often this means exaggerating and speculating on the menace of China and making generalizations which are based on isolated incidents and examples. Another concern that I have is that uh, senior public servants, think tanks and academics from defense and national security uh, tend to be favored as the sources in covering China. These tend to be quite hawkish voices and they tend to favor a close tie with the U.S. Their voices tend to drown the voices from diplomatic, business, and university communities who argue for a more culturally sensitive and a constructive uh, engagement with China. So, Emma, what do you think? Is the media getting caught up in stigmatising China? I think it's too simple to drill it down to that. I think that this is a, an incredibly uh, vexing issue in general. And what do I mean by that? is this a couple of things how do we define chinese influence i think it's a fact that obviously when you look at the numbers our biggest two-way trading relationship is with china you also look at the fact that our biggest cohort of overseas students in australia are now Chinese. And this is a relatively new phenomenon, of course. It came in with the Dawkins uh, changes of only a few decades ago, where before that it was actually illegal to take in foreign students. And so now all of a sudden we've got this confluence of uh, regulatory and other situations that see so many more Chinese people operating here, studying here, trading with us. We've got a free trade agreement with China. So the sort of the dynamic around this conversation has to be viewed in, with much more context around the influence of Chinese people. Of course, they're influential. They're in every interaction we have almost in this country. And I was just looking at the numbers, 14% jump in applications to study here in the six month to December 2017. So in, in terms of raw numbers, our trade is up with China. The number of students applying to come here is up. The, I think that you should look at it in terms of what effect is it actually having to the extent that it is a thing in terms of the way it's the way China is being discussed here. And also the other thing I would say is if we want to talk about um, uh, weaponising uh, the narrative, well, then what are we going to make of President Trump and his initial f flurry of, of comments around what? China and, you know, calling them a currency manipulator, uh, all the other things that uh, this new administration was saying about China – doesn't really seem to have had too much of a negative impact in the end when just this week they've managed to uh, uh, get Beijing to come to the table and actually say they're going to buy more American imports. Well, it's so remarkable not that, the way we thought that yeah, story was going to end. It's remarkable that Trump, if there is a tactic there, is <laughs> remarkable results sometimes. But what about this question of context, uh, Chris? Do you think there's a kind of... This kind of the, the silent invasion book comes out. There's a lot of debate about that. Then we have these new foreign interference laws. And then, of course, this last few days, we've had Andrew Hastie in Parliament. We'll get to him in a second. So do you think we're lacking, as the, as the news media, are we lacking context in, in this debate? 
just on Trump in a range of areas, uh, Trump is breaking the global <laughs> liberal media narrative. He's having a lot of success by actually breaking diplomatic tradition and uh, speaking bluntly uh, on China with trade, uh, with China uh, on North Korea and in other areas. But just to get back to the topic at hand, oh. I think the media, when it comes to the Chinese relationship, which is, of course, fundamental to Australia, not just to our economy, it's mainly an economic relationship, of course, it's crucial to us. But there are 1.2 million Australians now who claim Chinese heritage. They're our second biggest source country for permanent migrants. So so the uh, the Chinese influence and people-to-people links in this country are only going to expand uh, even more, and they've made a great contribution so far. I think overall the media has been very, uh, very diligent and uh, has done a good job in recent days by looking at some of the problems in this relationship. There's some problems on the fringes, fringes uh, where you get people screaming about... Uh, about um, over foreign investment and particularly sensitive to Chinese investment. We get that, I suppose, from the far right and the far left a little bit. But I think what we've seen with the media focus on uh, political interference and uh, some of the uh, political power plays is something reasonably unusual for the Australian media, and that is that uh, the Australian media is often quite bipolar. You sort of have a, a green left uh, point of view pursued by Fairfax and the ABC, and you have a right of centre uh, pursuit uh, by, uh, say, the, the, the News Corp uh, papers. Yet on this issue, um, I think both sides of that schism have actually produced some pretty diligent reporting where they've been standing up for the national interest and be very suspicious of, uh, of China's political involvement in our universities and with our politicians. Well, it's interesting, the developments over the last few days where we've seen uh, uh, Andrew Hasey, the Liberal backbencher and the chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence Security, use parliamentary privilege to make a series of claims about prominent Austra- Chinese-Australian businessman Chow Chak Wing. Among them is the allegation that Dr. Chow, a donor to several universities, including UNTS, I should say, funded the bribery of a former president of the UN General Assembly, John Ash. But a, but a four corners Fairfax, which you were sort of alluding to, Chris, has already just addressed these claims in some, some detail and are actually being sued by Dr. Chow about it. So, uh, Ben, is this kind of even news or is the news simply that Andrew Hasty used parliamentary privilege in this way to defend the Fairfax ABC story? What do you think? Oh, no, I think it is news, and it's news because we're talking about the dominant geopolitical issue of the 21st century, which is the rise of China. So Australia has a very, very important interest, obviously, in Southeast Asia and in the Pacific, and, and China is, is moving into that in geopolitical terms. So it is important. It's, it's important um, for a number of reasons, not just the day-to-day politics, but the longer-term issues there in terms of Australia's strategic future, but I, I really liked what your professor that you got on before had to say. I mean, I think she's absolutely right. There is a very hawkish sentiment that's emanating from Canberra um, and from insiders in the national security establishment. And I think they are skewing the media coverage to some degree. Uh, I mean, we know that China has many problems internally. It's not a democracy. It's a one-party state. Uh, but by the same token, you know, Australia's challenge is how to adopt a nuanced position in a world in which China will be increasingly dominant. So and can, I, can I ask you this, Ben, and we'll throw it out to the rest of the panel. What do you want to see that's different in the way we're dis- discussing in the news media is dealing with this issue? Well, if, you know, if you had your druthers, what, what would you want to see more of or less of? Well, I'd like to see more people who have uh, a broader view of uh, the, the, the rise of China. I'd like to see a, a diversity of views on national security, and I'd like to see more... 
Australian Chinese involved in this debate. Uh, we have a lot of them. I teach a lot of them in my class. Um, I'm colleagues with a native Shanghainese. You know, so these are people who live in Australia. They're from China. They have very well-informed views about China. They travel back to China all the time. I think they've got a lot of things to say. So do you, do you think they're constrained, sorry, Ben, in what they can say publicly? Some are. There's no doubt about that. There is a fear, I think, and a bit of a chilling effect about what's going on. Um, there's no doubt about that. But is that internal or external? I mean, <clears throat> what do you think? Oh, well, that, well it's, it's, it's in, there are internal pressures, but they're, they're fueled from, from external forces. This is the, the heart of the problem when it comes to political interference. So, look, I think the uh, coalition has been quite uh, strident on this issue, but I think they've done the right thing. I think you have to stand up for your interests despite uh, your trade reliance on China. I think uh, the Australian Labor Party is doing itself a lot of damage at the moment. Uh, what the, the New South Wales right in days gone by would have really stood up to China uh, at a time like this. Instead, we've got people like uh, former Foreign Minister Bob Carr, who essentially apologists for Beijing and, and suggest that Australia should kowtow to China. I think that's dangerous. I think the coalition... They've got to be careful, of course. You've got to try and take as much, much heat out of these issues as possible. But they're right to stand up to China on these strategic and domestic political interference issues. What I'd like to see is a little bit more major party political bipartisanship on this one issue, please. Is that too much to ask Chris, for? Chris, do, do you think, Chris, that the government is emboldened in any way by the Trump administration and their very aggressive stance towards Beijing? Look, it probably helps them because uh, anything they say is going to sound rather moderate compared to, to Trump's sort of uh, fiery rhetoric. But I think uh, when you look at uh, American policy in, in East Asia, it's pretty, been pretty consistent through Clinton, Bush, uh, uh, Obama and Trump. Uh, and, and that is they're there, to, they're there to stay and they want free pack, passage through the South China Seas and, and they're going to guarantee the security of, uh, of, of Japan and Taiwan and all the rest of it. So I think there is a continuity there uh, in American policy. It just sounds a little bit <laughs> more blunt coming from Donald Trump. Uh, just go on, Emma. I was just going to say, I, I think a lot of this emanates back from, um, I think it was Julie Bishop, wasn't it, who sort of sparked this to some degree when she was so incredibly strident about the, the flyover, the uh, territorial, uh, the, the uh, islands with territorial claims over them between Japan and and China, and she was incredibly forthright in her well, she has been. I public think she comments, and I credit. thought that was that was really impressive, actually, but, because she was saying what a lot of the the rest of the commentariat had been saying for a long time. But here's the rub, Emma. This is really crucial. Uh, all Australia is saying there, and rightly so, mm. is that the rule of international law should apply in the South China Sea, and the recipient of Chinese government patronage in Australia, Senator Sam Dastyari. <laughs> took their money and ran the opposite point of view, even mm. though his own party doesn't and, believe and in pay, that policy. The, so that, that sort of proves the case the that we've got an issue here to deal with. And, and when it, we're talking about influence, yep. what was behind that, do we think? Yes, I mean, that, that still raises a lot of questions Indeed. that have it's not been answered. It's wonderful to see the love and the hate media getting on so well this <laughs> evening. Uh, just final question, though, for you, Ben, uh, you know, there in Melbourne. Uh, is the word racism a useful word, sort of a, a useful context around here, or is it sort of a rather blunt way or rather reductive way of talking about this this subject. What do you think? Uh, I don't think it is useful in this context. I think, you know, we we, we have an actual, a very, a very complex issue here. It's got to do with economic relations. It's got to do with international security. It's got to do with, you know, some very delicate issues in North Asia. So I, I don't know if it is necessarily that useful. But 
I think we also need to step outside our white Australian context and have a look at the way the rest of the world sees us. You know, um, a lot of these things are, in fact, about what position you stand from and where you look at things from. Mm. And so when Chris uses a word like kowtow, you know, that's a loaded term. Um, It's a very appropriate term, and I wouldn't get carried away with these sorts of things, uh, Ben, because I would have thought anybody watching uh, what Australia's got to say from Vietnam, from the Philippines, from Taiwan, from Japan, is going to be very supportive of what Australia says. Sorry, just to jump in here, but do you think uh, some of these problems would be solved if we actually saw more uh, Chinese-Australian journalists reporting in, say, the Australian or the ABC or or Crikey even? I'm not sure that's even possible, is it? Well, we don't have a lot of them, that's for well, sure. Well, we need to grow some more of them. We well, want no, quotas, I, you, think I think they're... No, I don't want quotas. I think perhaps they're a little hamstrung in what they can say, as, as, as Ben noted as well from those he teaches. But the other thing I think is really important, on the one hand, uh, Chris talks about Labor kowtowing uh, to the Chinese, and then you've got this other issue that, that straddles both sides of politics, and it's a real vexed one, and it confronts the whole nation, and that is our, our reliance on China. Ooh. I don't know another country that is so reliant on China and that does confront us with so many difficult questions around how we deal with these very delicate issues. So you think we get overreach? Or underreach in, in a sense, because we well, don't think know how to sort of nuance it. We're, yeah, we're, I mean, it's really difficult because, uh, you know, you can be, you can say on the one hand that there's kowtowing, on the other hand, mm. should we be so reliant mm. on no, no, China well, the, 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 for our economic right. and, and, and other prosperity? Final, final word with you, Chris. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that economic uh, waiting uh, with our China relationship is, is an unsatisfactory situation for this country. It is the argument that people like Bob Carr and Hugh White use to say we have to nuance more towards Beijing because we need to protect this uh, economic relationship. My argument would be that what we need to do to balance that out is not to change our strategic settings, but to change our economic uh, Mm. settings. And we certainly need the the best way we can do that now. I know the government's working on that and Labor support them on that, is to do more with our relationship with India, whose economy is going to continue to emerge and will be a great uh, balance for our economy if we have much uh, stronger economic and trade relations. Can I I just make one point on the economic argument too? And and this is the point, right? Because it, it can, if not in practice, certainly in impression, give us a, a position of conflict, right? Because on the issue of students alone, because in the innovation space that I've been looking at for quite some time, this has come up. 43% of foreign students in Australia are Chinese, 166,000 at last count. Yep. And education is our third largest export. You yep. know, so if students from China all of a sudden decided yep. not Turn to come, Yep. That would have such enormous economic impact mm. for us. Okay. Yes, it would be massive. Well, it would massive. be absolutely devastating. Mm. I think some universities would even go under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Okay. That's probably another whole new show. You're listening to The Fourth Estate, a show where journos talk journalism. My name is Peter Frey, and I'm speaking with Emma Alberici, Chief Economics Correspondent at the ABC, Chris Kenny, Associate Editor of The Australian, and host of Sky News show Kenny on Sunday. We don't know what that's about. And on the line from Melbourne is Ben Altham, National Affairs Correspondent at New Matilda, Arts Journalist at Crikey, and Lecturer at Monash University. (laughs) 
the uh, I said at the top of the hour that the the show was a little bit about bashing, and there can be no other great sort of Australian sport than bank bashing. <laughs> and, and and the Royal Commission into Finance and Banking has turned its attention this week to small business, with particular focus on guarantors. And and as I say, it's really hard not to hate the banks, especially when we hear stories like that of disabled pensioner Caroline Flanagan. Uh, Westpac thought about kicking the elderly Mrs. Flanagan out of her own home after she stood guarantor for her uh, daughter, uh, a $165,000 loan. And after the loan went bad... The bank moved to evict Mrs. Flanagan, sell the home, and even fought her plea to stay in the house under hardship provisions. The bank eventually relented, and she can stay in the place now until she dies or sells. Happy days for Mrs. Flanagan. The story was greeted by headlines such as, Westback tried to kick a blind, sick, and disabled pensioner out of her own home. Not great PR for the banks yet again. But I don't want to sound heartless, but isn't the is it the bank of business and doesn't it have the right to call in a loan guarantee? And more to the point, have we got to the point where the banks can't win a trick? Ben, let's start with you. What do you think? Is there any limit to bank bashing? Well, uh, not probably while the Royal Commission is running uh, mm. because it keeps uncovering really, really amazing examples of malfeasance, of uh, illegality, you know, as we saw with AMP. So, I think uh, as long as the Royal Commission is keeping on digging up dirt, um, really, really amazing stories of, of the bank's misconduct, then I, I think the bashing will go on. Well, okay, okay, that's a fair point. What do you think, Chris? Look, I think you've got to be very, very wary of the media zeitgeist. I think journalists tend to run as a pack. Media organisations often run as a pack, and when they do, they get up on a certain momentum and they can't be stopped. And, of course, we've seen some shocking behaviour from the banks that's been exposed here, and they deserve all the criticism they're getting over over those issues. But this particular issue, to me... Uh, is one where the bank, if anything, have been reasonable because they have every right to actually for, uh, sell this property and, and, and take the money that's owed to them. Instead, they've relented and allowed the woman to stay in there. Uh, they'll take their asset to, when she passes on or, or sells it. Uh, the, the person that should be bashed here is her daughter, who <laughs> asked her to go guarantee for the loan and obviously got her, her mother into a lot of trouble. Now, it's, a, it's, it's, it's good for the media to coverage, cover this because it's a salient warning to everyone about... Uh, the, the, the trouble that parents can get into guaranteeing these sorts of loans with their properties. But I would have thought that, sure, they've had to fight for it, but in the end, the resolution that the bank has provided here is pretty it, it, it is a pretty fair one. Well, just sticking with Mrs Flanagan for a second, I mean, as she said in the, in the commission, why wouldn't you support, even give your, you know, your daughter a, a leg up if she asked for it? So there, there is that very human element to that. But what do you think, Emma? This sort of this, is the zeitgeist getting carried away with bank bashing? I mean, and should we care? Yes and yes. <laughs> and and look, uh, so here's the thing, right? I, I've uh, written three books on small business and I'm going to come from a different point of view. Uh, I think that uh, – and I was thinking about this today. My first line in my book was – businesses don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. And 
in one in three cases, businesses that are starting today will fail, right? That's the, the sad statistic. Banks are not a community service. In fact, banks are very, the very lifeline of our economy, right? And and speaking of uh, corporate tax, they're the highest, you know, in terms of our – speaking again about what our economy relies on, our economy relies on these banks to, to pay their taxes because they're the top taxpayers in the country. So we can lose sight of the fact that they are businesses. They're not a community service. And if you're going to put your house up against your – your daughter and your son, well, sell it and give them the money. I'm being very harsh now, I know, but like sell them and give them, sell it and give them the money. What you're doing is you're saying, I believe my daughter and her partner are going to be really successful in this pool building business. And, oh, no, they weren't. So now it's the bank's problem, right? Well, if you were so confident about your daughter and her partner, you know, this is a really mean way to go about it. Yeah, but sure. no, let's forget right. that this this um, poor woman has cancer. It's a terrible, terrible story. Absolutely. But let's go back to who should be responsible here. Absolutely, the daughter and her partner. Uh, and hopefully they will pay it back somehow at some time because they made the calculator, you know. And, and the other thing that, that is important to note here and in my several years of writing on small business and, uh, and, and small businesses and big businesses that have failed and done well I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is everyone thinks they've got the best idea and they're going to be <laughs> yes. so successful. Yeah. And, you know, and people used to say to me when I was writing in this space or whatever, why don't you start your own business? I used to always say, because I've seen those that I know how hard it is. So you you know? I came up with a your great idea, idea of, uh, of uh, wireless headphones and then I jumped on a plane and saw Zenheiser were already selling them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. hey. So, so, but, so uh, Ben, what do you think? We've got two rather heartless people in the, in, in the <laughs> studio. I mean, they... Who knew we had so much in common? Yeah, there you go. I'll tell you what, we're getting that quote there from Emma defending the banks and we'll be playing that on the media (laughs) watch on Monday night. So Ben, now in all seriousness though, is there a... I mean, you made a fair point that I think we're in this sort of moment where a lot of things are coming up. I mean, are we... Do you think the Royal Commission, the way it's being reported, is sort of shining a path towards not only systemic problems, but also potential answers uh, that or are we just basically indulging in a you know a good bashing? You know what's going to what do you think the media is doing in terms of how it's again nuancing this argument? Yeah, no, I actually think there's been some very good reporting of the Royal Commission. I think you've got Adele Ferguson, who's obviously written about this issue for a long time. She's been reporting on the Royal Commission, and she's been making some really solid points. I mean, look at the regulator ASIC. It's been absolutely asleep at the wheel while most of this malfeasance has happened. She's pointing that out. Michael Yanda's been making some really good points in the ABC website, making exactly the same point. I mean, let's let's sort of zoom up a little bit from one bad loan, um, because I agree. You know, that there's a sovereign, there's a risk there um, for both the people loaning the money and the people who are getting the money in a loan, but. Let's look at the bigger issue here. We're talking about four major banks that are too big to fail. They have an explicit government guarantee. They, they cannot fail. The mm. government will bail them too out. Too big to fail. They are too big to fail. Mm. Um, they have had essentially very light-touch regulation to no regulation over the last 10 years or so. Um, and I think the chickens are coming home to roost. We're seeing broad, systemic malfeasance 
um, and, and illegality across a number of institutions, you know. And so I think it's understandable that the media is reporting on this. In fact, the media has been reporting on this for a decade, and that's why we've got a Royal Commission. Well, I, yeah, go on, go on sorry, now. the other yeah. thing I would say is uh, a couple of things. First of all, I'm not sure that the public is entirely aware, uh, and the media for that matter, that a lot of the issues that are being canvassed at the Royal Commission have already played out in the courts. And in fact, Commissioner Haynes said that was going to be the case at the start, that he didn't have time to prosecute new, new cases and that this would just be an examination of what was already pretty much on the public record through ASIC. So, so on that point, are we seeing this systemic, they're unearthing systemic problems, but are we, is the media helping us to understand the systemic answers? What I, what I think is uh, a, a, what's been on display, and I agree with Ben, is the failures of ASIC. And I think this cosy relationship ASIC has developed with some of uh, the banks such that they have they have uh, come into these arrangements known as enforceable undertakings where they say, okay, you've done the wrong thing and then the bank says, okay, but what I'll undertake to do is to uh, redress my customers by giving them, you know, the quantum of $2 million or something. Yep. And that's the sum total of the slap on the wrist that they get. They agree with ASIC that's over a handshake that they will do this, that and the other. And there's no criminal prosecution. There's no prosecution at all in many cases. And you've got to, I guess you've got to, on the other hand, balance that with what does it cost to run a prosecution? And ASIC has not been particularly, um, they're not covering themselves in glory sure. in the courts over the years. Uh, so their average is what? about what do you think about the reporting, though, of the Royal Commission? Yeah, look, I think it's been worthwhile. Uh, I think it's getting a bit carried away, as we said earlier, with uh, with every case being highlighted as uh, a travesty. But uh, what Emma said is very important. That is, a lot of these issues we knew about previously. Now, this is why I was one of the people who bought the argument that we didn't need a Royal Commission, that it was unnecessary, because we were aware of most of these issues and we could uh, probably deal with them uh, through uh, through regulatory change. Now, Having seen the Royal Commission unfold, I, I'm prepared to say what Fonzie used to try and say, and that is, uh, I was, w- 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 I might have, I might have been mistaken. I think the Royal Commission, uh, I, I'm certainly, I, I was wrong to think it was not necessary because even though we haven't uncovered anything particularly new. The method uh, and the depth of the exposure through this process has been very cathartic. It's humiliated the banks. It's forced them already to talk about. Uh, taking steps to, to, to improve their culture. It's forced a, a good examination of the regulatory agencies to see whether we need reform there. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's been useful from that point of view. I think one of the things we're bound to see, for instance, is a splitting away of the uh, financial advisory arms from, mm-hmm. from, from, from the other financial institutions, uh, which, which can't happen soon So do you enough. think you'll forever change how we report on banks? Because you know, there's been quite a lot over the years. You think there's been a lot of you know, love given to the banks? As no, a, and they've always, the it's always been easy for politicians and journalists to bash banks. I don't think that's a new mm. thing. But I think this... There's no votes in being nice to the yeah. banks. Yeah. No, but I... <laughs> I wonder whether, you know, the level of scrutiny as a general rule across the media will change I think it will get a bit. But I'll tell you, one thing will change is the banks will get a bit more serious about how they engage with the public and the media. What they've done for the last two decades is spend an enormous amount of money on very lovely advertising campaigns and sponsoring sporting events and whatever and trying to get us to love them. Well, what they need to do instead is to get their public affairs people to deal with issues and deal with customers and deal with their concerns. Well, this goes to the issue of uh, they've spent too much time and money on virtue 
signaling yes. and looking mm. after their customers. What do you think about that, Emma? Yeah, no, I think there's uh, there's a bit of that. But I do think that, um, contrary to what Ben said, I do think there has been some, some good regulation in Australia that's certainly been wanting in the UK and the yep. US, which is why their banks fell over um, kind of like dominoes. And mm. I was over there during the mm. global financial crisis as the Europe correspondent, and I saw this up close. Uh, and in fact... I did ponder, I wrote about this a few times, that I also reported on the HIH Royal Commission, which people will recall led to some serious regulatory change, the splitting off of APRA, the, you know, the, the change in, in the governing of uh, financial institutions, insurance companies and banks. They used to come under Reserve Bank and then, and then much of their functions went to the combination of APRA and ASIC. And I think that was all very good in terms of this was 2001, those regulations, 2001 to 2003. But I think we need to look at these closely as, as environment circumstances change. And I think the next big change now is going to be the rise of the fintech sector, which I don't think we're looking at closely enough. And they are going to disrupt the banks, especially now given they're so on the nose, in a way that could have serious implications yeah, for the absolutely. broader financial sector and economy. A final word maybe from you, Ben, which is, do you think this has also highlighted the need to have a more economically literate uh, media? You know, there's a really interesting. So we have the, you know, we're blessed with the economics correspondent, the ABC here. Chris obviously is no, uh, you know, no dummy on these sorts of matters, and, and neither yourself. But generally, as a rule, you know, you, a lot of people become journalists because they run away from maths. Do you think we need to sort of essentially, <laughs> you know, get our get our economically literacy, economic literacy levels in journalism a bit higher? Yeah, I think we need uh, higher literacy in in pretty much every subject matter in journalism. Um, I, I think, you know, yes, we need more um, people who are economically literate, but, uh, gee, we need a whole lot more people who are sociologically literate. I don't think we have any people who are trained in sociology in the media, pretty much. Um, and yet, if you look at what's what's going on with the banks, this, this is not really an issue of, of economics, certainly not macroeconomics. This is an issue of mismatched incentives. This is an issue of banks being able to get away with it because of poor regulation. Well, I'd argue that's a sociological issue, a criminological issue, if you like. Okay. All right. Well, well on that moment and on that, that comment, because I think there's another whole show in the in this sort of area, uh, that's kind of it from the Fourth Estate for this week. Uh, many, many thanks to to, uh, to our guest, Emma Alberici, Chief Economics Correspondent on the, from the ABC. Thank you, Emma. Thank you very much. Chris Kenny, the associate editor of The Australian and host of Sky News show Kenny on Sunday. Thanks, Peter, Emma, Ben. And on the line from Melbourne is Ben. Ben Eltham, national affairs correspondent at New Matilda, arts journalist at Crikey and a lecturer at Monash University. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you're already a subscriber, please leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook. It helps us to know what you like and it helps other people find the show. And you can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter and our handle is at Fourth Estate AU. This edition of The Fourth Estate was produced by the ever-organised Nina Capel. My name is Peter Frey, and until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>